All right, so let's hop right into this story, shall we? I love this story. First of all, I want us to notice in this story, in the very beginning, the humanity of Jesus Christ. We worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but Jesus Christ was hangry. Did you notice that? Jesus Christ was hangry. I find great comfort in the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because as someone who gets hangry on occasion, I know how it feels. The man is hungry. It's early in the morning, right? He's looking for some food to eat on his way to Jerusalem. And he sees a tree that doesn't have any figs on it. But it says in the text that it does have leaves on it. So there's green leaves. So it looks like it's alive, right? But it's not producing any fruit. And then it says it wasn't the season for figs. And that's kind of strange too, isn't it? Like, why is Jesus getting mad when it's not even the season for figs? Well, one thing I learned about fig trees and studying this this week is that in the Middle East, there's a, there's a little tiny fruit that's not a fig, but it like comes on the tree first. And when you see that little tiny fruit, and uh, I, I can't pronounce the word for it, you'll have to look it up. It's a sign that there will be figs in a couple of months. So since this was right before the Passover, it's about March or April of the year, Jesus should have been able to see some little fruits that were signs that more fruit was coming. But he didn't see any fruit. And people have tried to explain this away, but at the very basic entrance into this story, Jesus was hangry, right? Come on, am I the only one? Does anyone else get a little bit hangry? Come on, I see wives raising their hands for their husbands, all right, and other people, all right. So we know how this feels, right? And he curses the fig tree. I mean, when you're the son of God, but you're also fully human, you're just going to have those moments, right? You're just going to have those moments, and he curses the fig tree. But also, in addition to that, there's another level of what's happening here that I'm going to explain in just a minute because it relates to the very next part of the story that Jesus goes into the temple. So Jesus walks into the temple into Jerusalem and he's already not in a good mood. Amen. Can anyone relate? You ever gone to church not in the best of moods? You don't have to put your hands up. We don't need to know exactly who you are. I'm just kidding. But you know, he's not in a great mood, all right? So when you're already hungry and you're not in a great mood and you come in and you see something that really, really bothers you, you're beginning to feel, right, the emotions and the feelings that are welling up inside of Jesus. And what happens is Jesus comes into the temple and he sees all kinds of things going on, all kinds of activity, all kinds of leaves that are green, but he doesn't see the fruit that God wants to be produced in the temple. He sees everything else going on except what should be going on. For when he enters the temple in Jerusalem, he finds that the place of worship has become just another place of work, that the place of peace has become a place of chaos, and the place where people were supposed to be able to connect deeply and meaningfully with God through prayer had become just another line that people had to wait in. And so when Jesus sees this, he doesn't simply shake his head in disgust. He doesn't walk back out and give another teaching, another dissertation on what the problems are and the hypocrisies of organized religion. No, in a bold, unprecedented, perhaps for this master teacher, an unexpected move, Jesus starts a one-man riot. He starts literally turning over tables, knocking things over, driving people out of the temple. In one of the stories, he even makes a whip and starts just driving the animals, driving the people right out of the temple. Jesus makes a spectacle. He makes a scene. You know, and I just can't help but in my mind wonder if one of the disciples just wanted to hand him a Snickers. You know, you'll feel better if you have a Snickers. But something is going on inside of Jesus that has many levels to it that is deep and profound. So I want to take a little closer look at what was happening there in the temple. Because it's very specific what the writer Mark says that Jesus is doing to certain groups of people in the temple. First of all, there are the money changers. It says that Jesus turns over the table of the money changers and he drives them out. Why were there money changers in the temple? 
Because they developed this system where if you came from another country or another place and you had different currency, you had to exchange your currency into the special temple currency so that you could give your offerings to God. Can you imagine if we had a, a table set up, you know, like the exchange booths here at church and you had to exchange all your money for something else when you came in? Well, what were people doing? They were making money off of this, right? You know you don't get a fair deal when you got to trade your money. They were charging rates. They were taking extra money on it. They were extorting and taking advantage of people that came from different countries, people from different races, people that were different than they were, and that was becoming a block and a hindrance to the true worship of God. Second group of people that says Jesus took their tables and knocked them over was the tables of those who were selling the doves or the pigeons. Now, this is significant if we dive down into this for a moment, because those were the animal sacrifices that God required that people bring. So again, they were selling what was required to come in and worship God. Can you imagine? It's like, like if you had to buy a Bible before you could walk into church, right? But they're selling the very things that they needed to come and to worship God. But it's significant. Doves and pigeons are very specific types of sacrifices. For when God set up this system with Moses back in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, God said there are three different types of animal sacrifices that you can bring to me that are acceptable. One, you can bring a bull from your herd. Two, you can bring a sheep or a goat from your flock. Three, you can bring a dove or a pigeon. And what those three options represented was the three different levels of economic society at that time. For those who were rich, they had cattle. They could bring a bull. So the bull was the offering of those who were rich. Those who were kind of middle class might have a flock of sheep or goats. So the, they could bring a sheep or a goat, and that was the offering of the middle class. But the poorest people who didn't have a herd or a flock God said they can still come and worship in me because they can simply bring a dove or a pigeon, something that they could get on their own and they could bring to worship me. So when Jesus turns over the table of those selling the doves and the pigeons, it is an indictment against the exploitation of the poorest members of society. And Jesus stops them from carrying merchandise. He basically comes in and interrupts business as usual because business as usual was being very racist against people from other countries and being very exploitative of those who were poor who didn't have enough. They were being hurt the most by the system that was, yes, taking advantage of everyone. But we know that in every system that is wrong, there are those who get it more than others do. And the ones being hurt the most were the poor and those who were from other races, those that probably many Jews didn't think belonged. And so Jesus came and he interrupted business as usual. Friends, have you ever had that holy disruption in your own life? Because you see, when business as usual becomes a business that has nothing to do with the business of God, then Jesus will come. And he'll bring a holy disruption of an interruption to what's going on in our lives, in our world, in our society. Jesus is basically saying enough is enough. He literally overturns a system that favors the privileged and the powerful because they were making it hard for people to get in. Have you ever had a hard time getting in somewhere? Has anybody ever had that experience? I, I think of sometimes you want to go to a really popular restaurant or a store, maybe in New York City, right? And there's those lines outside, right? And not everybody can get in, you know, because maybe someone famous is in there, or there's a big sale going on. You ever seen that experience? Or thought about, you know, those clubs that people want to get into, and you got to be dressed the right way, and you got to know the right person, you know, to even get inside the door. There are places that are hard to get into that people make it hard to get into, right? 
Uh, for instance, if you wanted to go and visit our president at the White House, could you walk right into the White House and see the president? No, there's all kinds of steps and procedures, right, and things that you would have to do in order to be able to get in. And in many places in our world, people put in barriers and restrictions, and they make it difficult for people to get into something. As an illustration, I wanted to share this story. Um, back in January of 2001, I went to my first Super Bowl. Yes, by the grace of God, I have a very generous friend who has taken me to two Super Bowls. So we went down to the Giants and Ravens Super Bowl in 2001, right? And it's the Friday before the Super Bowl, and my friend is driving, and he says, let's go to the stadium and walk around. I'm like, what? You can't get into the stadium before the Super Bowl. He's like, yeah, we can. Come on. So we drive up, and I'm like, I'm like nervous. I'm sweating. My heart's beating. And he sees this line of people walking in, and it was a bunch of students and adults, and what they were was they were one of the groups that was there to perform, you know, at the Super Bowl. So he said, just get in line behind them. So we just got in line behind him, and we walked right in. Nobody checked our ID. Everybody thought we were with them. We were inside the stadium. I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're inside the stadium. So we walk into the stands, and there's people on the on the field that are practicing. And, you know, little-known groups back in the day, like the Backstreet Boys that were going to do the national anthem, and Ray Charles that was going to sing God Bless America. They're practicing on the field, and there's nobody in the seats. And I'm thinking, okay, we got to follow this plan. we got to act like we're with somebody. And the only people that were sitting in the stadium were the Baltimore Ravens cheerleaders. So we went and sat right behind the Baltimore Ravens cheerleaders, tried to strike up a conversation. They were having none of it. But we sat there for a while just trying to blend in and not get caught. And then, he, then we got up and we walked around, and it was amazing. We saw all these announcers, ex-football players, people coming in and out. We're walking around the stadium we're like, I can't believe that we're in this place, you know, that they let us in. We are people that shouldn't have been there. And then the stadium was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Stadium. And in that stadium, they have a very large life-size pirate ship, right? That's kind of one of their features. And my friend says, I want to go on that pirate ship. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know. That's another step. So we start walking up, you know, the, the, the gangway or whatever to the pirate ship. And I hear this voice behind me, excuse me, can I see your badge? And I'm like, I turn around. I'm like, oh, oh, I, 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 I don't have a badge. And so I quickly got down. Thinking that my friend's right behind me. No, he starts walking faster. And I'm telling you, the funniest thing I saw was this security guy chasing my friend around the deck of the pirate ship, but they were fast walking. Like, none of them really wanted to run, so they were fast walking until finally he came down, and the guy let him go, and we took off. And by this time, I am so sweating. I'm like, we do not belong here. We got to get out of here. He's like, I got one more thing. I'm like, one more thing? What are you talking about? He walks to see what he, he, he does. He walks straight up to the security guard. He says, hey, excuse me, can you tell me where the restrooms are? Guy's like, oh yeah, you go down this ramp, you turn a corner, and it's down underneath. He's like, okay, let's go. So then we walked down into the bottom of the stadium, a place I'd never been before. And right next to the bathroom was this kitchen about the size of this room where they were cooking and making things for whatever. And my friend walks right into the kitchen like he owns the place. He's like, hey, what are you making today? What's good? And the guy else is like, hey, I just made some cookies. Take some. So he grabs some cookies and gives them to me, and we eat our cookies on the way out of the stadium, right? It was amazing. It was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in my life. Now, fast forward to January of 2003, and we're at the Super Bowl with the Raiders and the Buccaneers in San Diego, and this is after 9-11. And do you want to think we could get into the stadium then? No way. In fact, even going to the game, going to the game, there were metal detectors, there was a pat-down, there was like five security checks, they like scanned your ticket 29 times. I mean, it was a whole different world, right? And many people would say that you need to do that, right? At an event like the Super Bowl, you need to have certain measures in place that protect the integrity and the purity of what's going on inside the Super Bowl, right? And to go to a Super Bowl, you have to have 
money, right? You have to have enough money to buy a ticket or a friend that buys you one. You have to have the right connections. Only the most privileged and the most powerful people are in attendance at the Super Bowl. It's very difficult to get in unless you're inside that small percentage of the population. But friends, what I want to tell you today, that what is true of the Super Bowl is completely not true of the house of God. In the house of God, it is exactly the opposite situation. There should be no barriers. There should be nothing hindering you. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter what language you speak. But everyone is welcome in the house of God. For Jesus says as much. He, After he clears the temple, he issues a proclamation. And he says that my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Meaning that people of every language and people of every people group should be able to come and worship in my house. That everyone is welcome. And what's happening? here is you're doing things that are hindering people from worshiping God, especially the poor and the outsider. But Jesus says, my house is for everyone. Friends, let me tell you what's going on inside the house of God with the people of God is far more beautiful, powerful, and profound than any Super Bowl or any event that you can go to because we get to meet with the Lord God who created the universe the king of all kings. In fact, you have an all-access pass to the presence of God, and the name is Jesus Christ that's written on it, and he gives it to you as his child, and you have every right to boldly walk into the presence of God and say, hey, God, what are you cooking today? Because you belong there. You belong in the house of God. The house of God is open to everyone, especially poor people. It's open to men and women. It's open to children. Jesus said, don't hinder the children. Let them come. It's open to, to people of every language, every race, every background, every culture, every sexual orientation is welcome in the house of God. Because Jesus says that all people are welcome in my house. And this is my house. And if you're going to try to put rules on my house and keep people out from my house, then guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to kick some tables over. You thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? I'm going to kick some tables over, right? I mean, it's interesting to me what gets Jesus really mad, right? What gets Jesus really angry is when people are hindered from coming to be able to worship God. And what is the business of the church, of the temple, right? What is the business? My house shall be a house of what? Say it. Prayer, right? Which is worship, but say the house of prayer. Say it. House of prayer, right? Which is connection with God. Worship that we do is prayer. We're talking to God. We're talking about God. Worship is connecting to God. It is prayer. Everything that we do is prayer. By the grace of God, some of the words I speak, God is inspiring to hear you. This is communication with God. When you pray with each other at the end of the service, you are entering into what is the business of the church. And friends, it's not about making money. It's not about merchandise. It's not about buying and selling. We get so off. We get on so many things. It's not about different agendas that we have. It's simply about connecting with God in a deep and meaningful way. And if we ever get away from that business... I believe that Jesus will come in and give us a holy interruption and disrupt what we're doing and remind us of the true purpose of his people, which is to be a people that welcome everyone into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to the fig tree, right? Because after this scene, after this incident, Jesus draws the attention of the authorities, right? And in Mark, this incident occurs at the beginning of the last week of his life. So in a way, you can see Jesus is almost kind of doing something that incites 
the authorities against him, right? He's kind of doing something public, making a demonstration, making a protest, right? And so the leaders, as Mary read, they're not happy about it, right? And they're upset, but the people kind of like him at this point. So they don't know what to do. So Jesus is, is able to hang out without being arrested or detained at that point. And he's able to walk out that evening, stay where they're staying outside the city. And the next morning, they're walking by the same way. And they come up on the fig tree. Remember the fig tree right before when Jesus was hangry? Hopefully Jesus had some breakfast beforehand this time. You know, hopefully the disciples said, let's give him something to eat before we get on the road because we don't need anything else being cursed. They see the tree and it's withered down to its roots. Like it is just destroyed. It is gone. And Peter walks up and he's like, dude, Jesus, check this out. Look at the tree. Look what you did. And you can see that Peter's just all excited. And, and, and it, Jesus is like, Peter, just calm down. Just hold on a minute. He's like, you think that's exciting? You think that's powerful? When you understand the power of prayer, when you begin to have a faith that is rooted deeply in me, you'll be able to say to the mountain, go throw yourself in the sea. He said, you haven't even begun yet to understand the power of prayer and what prayer can do with faith in God. Like, oh, Peter, there's so much more that you're going to see and so much more that you're going to do. And that kind of power in the presence of God should give us confidence to not be afraid to stand up for what is right and to do what is right. Because you see, the fig tree becomes symbolic, does it not? By the author Mark taking the fig tree and, and bracketing the story of the temple, he's saying that the fig tree is representative of the temple. There's a lot of religious activity. There's green leaves. It looks like good things are happening. But fruit is not being produced. And this idea of a tree that produces good fruit is a strong and pervasive symbol of the spiritual life throughout the scriptures. It reminds me of our theme verse for the year of Connection. John 15, and if I could read um, the section around it for you this morning. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus then is the vine that allows us to produce good fruit. And what happened is, is that he was coming and announcing that if you want to be connected to God, I am the connection that you can make with God. You need to understand that your life is found in me. And when you welcome me and you receive the welcome into my house, then you're going to be fruitful you're going to produce much fruit. Again, this image is found all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. From the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 7 and 8. He says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It will never fail to bear fruit. And that's a symbol the spiritual life that is connected to God. It's what the house of God and the people of God should be all about. Jesus gave a teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. He said, watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes out of the thorn bush or figs from the thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit 
But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, For you were once in darkness. You are now light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And of course, we know that Paul said in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that people should see in your lives, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let us live by the Spirit. And finally, from the book of Revelation, this image is found from Genesis to Revelation. John sees this vision of, of the Garden of Eden restored, what life on earth is supposed to be like, of the new heaven, new earth, of God's kingdom in its fullness. And listen to this vision. Imagine it in your mind, if you will, what John was able to see. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Bearing its fruit every month. Every month. For you see, when Jesus came upon the fig tree, on the earthly level, it was not the season for the figs. But Jesus still expected to see some fruit because you see, Jesus in God's economy expects us to bear fruit in every season. You see what I'm talking about? He's saying, listen, it's not just for a time that you serve the Lord. It's not just at certain places, certain days, certain times, but every season is your season. And don't we like to use that excuse, well, I'm just not in the right season of life to bear fruit right now, right? I, I've just got this going on, right? We like to say that it's just not our time, but Jesus comes and says to you, with me, it is your time. It is always time. You should be bearing good fruit all the time but friends do our lives sometimes look like the tree that has a lot of green leaves it looks healthy nothing is apparently wrong with our tree but we're not producing any fruit we're not producing any fruit god wants us to produce fruit and we can't even begin to produce fruit apart from being connected to jesus christ and to his presence and we let his life that river of water is the holy spirit right that flows through us and I love that little bit at the end of Revelation. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, for all people. Friends, what kind of fruit are we bearing in our lives? How do your branches look this morning? Are you, there's so many that are mentioned in what I just read. And I have extra copies of these verses up here at the front. If you want to grab one after the service, please feel free to do so. But let me take us to one more place to think about as we enter into a time of prayer this morning, as we begin to just seek God and seek his presence for bearing good fruit in our lives. In a famous verse, the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, said, what, what is good? What is good? What is, we might say, what is the good fruit? What does the Lord require of you? Well, you've seen it the whole service. It's to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Are you participating in justice? Are you helping to make things right in this world? Are you participating in mercy? Because the forgiven need to forgive, friends. I've got no other way to say it. I know it's difficult, and it's hard, and it takes time. I understand that. But I do know that the forgiven need to forgive. The Bible says, praise God that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
And then that last part that we often forget, I often forget, walk humbly with your God. God is God, we are not. Let us not, and you see when Jesus came into the temple, there was all this arrogance, there was all of these hindrances, you know, there was no mercy. If you couldn't pay, you were out. There was no justice. People were being extorted and exploited for monetary gain. Jesus said, there's no fruit here. If there's no fruit, I'm judging this tree. But if this tree would humble itself and connect to me, all the fruit that could be produced every season, every month, every day, every week, all the time. We spend some time in prayer together. I want to invite you to just listen to the Lord right now. Where is God guiding you? Where is God saying to you, hey, this is some fruit that I want to see in your life? Just think about one of the things that was mentioned from the Bible this morning. Is it a fruit of the Spirit that God wants to bring out in your life? Is it righteousness? Is it truth that God wants to bring out in your life? Is it working for justice? Is it forgiving someone? Is it being humble? Just enter into a time of meditation and prayer. And just think about, think about the fruit that God wants to produce in your life.